In, in lightning. Inspirational. Powerfully refining. Powerfully refining. And unapologetically controversial. Conversations with, with the Royal Impress. The entire world knows the secret of who you are. Now is the time to step into your queendom and become the Royal Empress that you're meant to be. One woman at a time. Conversations with the Royal Empress. Now Akima, she's the analytical Empress. Akima, she's the Empress that will challenge you. And Lakeshe Nadira, she's the Empress who tells it like it is. Now, straighten up your crown and be elevated through conversation. Conversation with the Royal Empress. Conversations with the Royal Empress. I am Dr. Hakima, and joining me are my fellow co-host and co-founder of Royal Empress, Akila, and our two guest empresses, Brandy Smart and Dr. Steffi Turner. Dr. Turner is our Royal Empress mental health professional. Today's topic is, what are HBCUs and how do they serve the Black community? I just want to note that our two guests, Brandy Smart and Dr. Turner, are also HBCU alumni. Ladies, I'm so excited about this topic. I've been wanting to do this for a while. How have I never gone to HBCU? I've always wanted to. I want to steer my children there, but I thought this would be a very good topic. Uh, one of the things I do before we start our topic, I do want to go over the definitions because I don't want to assume that our listeners know. HBCU uh, stands for Historically Black Colleges and Universities. The Higher Education Act of 1965 defines historically black colleges and universities as a historically black college or university that was established prior to 1964 and whose primary mission was and is to educate black people or black Americans. We'll also use the term PWI, which represents predominantly white institutions. So you will hear us say HBCUs and PWIs in the conversation, okay? One of the first things I want to talk about is the myths of HBCUs. Who would like to address that? Well, this is Akila, and I'm not going to address any myths, but before we get started, where, what schools did our guest co-host attend? We can shout out those HBCUs. Okay, Brandy, go ahead and start us off with that. I attended Grambling State University and Texas Southern University. Okay. Shout out to uh, Grambling State and shout out to Texas Southern University. Dr. Turner, what's, what uh, HBCU did you attend? Okay, I attended the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff, and I believe it's the 13th um, uh, HBCU, Historically Black College, mm. that was created. Okay, okay. Now, I've heard so many myths about HBCUs. I've heard some positive things about HBCUs. But would you, all, would you all like to share your experiences and what made you want to go to at HBCU and what myths you heard or what, do, what, what positive things you heard to make you want to attend a HBCU over a predominantly white institution? 
Well, I, I can go first. My experience, um, growing up, I lived in predominantly white neighborhoods, and I always went to predominantly white schools. And so <clears throat> I wanted to go to an HBCU in order to have the Black community experience, the Black college experience. And I also grew up in a time where Black colleges were heavily promoted. So like the Cosby Show or Living Single, Martin, everybody would wear the black, the HBCU, the hoodies and the um, the outfits. And I grew up watching A Different World. So mm-hmm. that was what college looked like to me. And I felt that because I was African-American, that that's where I should go to college. And so it was very important for me to have that experience. It's profound because you don't, we don't really have those images in front of us right now as far as the promotion of the HBCUs as far as fashion, because I think the company that there was a, a, a ahead of those that was out there promoting that or creating that was a, a yeah. African Alliance, something African American Alliance, and um, mm-hmm. AACA or something like that. And um, they they were the makers of that particular those uh, sweatshirts that Martin Lawrence used to wear and Queen Latifah used to wear. I grew up. Um uh, in a predominantly black um, community and um, experienced a lot of racism very early uh, with the education system. So I wanted to go to HBCU uh, primarily for safety reasons and um, because I felt it would be more nurturing and more protective. And it turned out to be just that. So what, what myths did you guys hear before you actually got there that you found out wasn't even true, that it just didn't apply? that it doesn't prepare us for success. Mm. And that, that wasn't true. And if the education wasn't a quality education, and that wasn't true. Mm. I didn't, I can't say that I, I knew of any myths before I entered college, but I can say that when I, when I arrived, I thought that I was not going to like it. I was, I was immediately um, just unhappy and it may be because of my age or because of transition or because it was my first time really being alone but a lot of um, maybe freshmen maybe are afraid or apprehensive so just thinking that we wouldn't like it or we wouldn't enjoy it and um, really falling in love with the school and with being there and feeling like it's family. Now um, I, you know for me uh, I was exposed to myths when uh, when I was looking to choose a college and I, and I was trying to explain to my parents that I wanted to go to HBCU. Well, you know, of course, you know, my parents were like, you can't go to HBCU. And a lot of the myths that was in their mind was basically, uh, was combined with the fears of when you send your children off to school, but also those myths of you can't get a quality education. It's not going to be a supportive environment for you. Um, I want to, uh, mentioned an article that College Express wrote in October of 2014, and they listed some myths of, of what people think about HBCUs. And the, 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 one of the myths is that you wouldn't get a first-rate education, but that has um, turned out to be, um, to be false because you both just uh, reiterated that you got a, a, quality, educa- a quality education. Um, an- another good another myth also was you're not gonna have a, a, a caring uh, professional staff and, and and from what I've been reading or researching about HBCUs that's not necessarily true. 
um, that the classes are not catered in a way that it would be supportive for educational for black students. And from what I've read, that's not true as well. So there are some myths that's out there and I don't know where they started from, um, who was behind it. And it could possibly just be a lack of understanding or just myths that's put out there about a white community that don't want to see black people go to their own community. Because one of the myths that's also put out there is that you won't experience diversity at HBCU. Now you all will be able to confirm that, but from what I've read is that there are diverse uh, populations at HBCU. Even though the HBCUs are predominantly black, there's still uh, uh, diverse cultures that attend the HBCUs as well. Can you all attest to that? I would say um, at, uh, Texas Southern University is the most diverse HBCU. Um, it's in the center of Houston, so it's downtown, and we had the, um, one of the most diverse campuses. Um, I would also like to address the fact that when people look at diversity, a lot of times they look at race. Mm -hmm. um, mm. And although you may be at a school that's predominantly one race or another race, diversity comes in different forms. And so I know that just going to college in general, I encountered people from, you know, all over the world people from different cultures, people from um, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic standing, just being in an environment um, with your peers and your cohorts, but understanding and seeing how different we are, you know, versus maybe one of the myths is that, you know, going to HBCU, well, that myth is that there's no diversity and that you're going to be like people that are all just the same, and it's, and it's pretty much the opposite. I was agreeing with you when, when she was mentioning diversity and you actually touched on exactly what I was thinking is that diversity is not just about race. One of the myths that I feel that I heard growing up was, well, why would you go to an all black school when that doesn't represent the real world? Because you're not going to always work around black people. You know, you, you're, you're going to have to go out and you're going to have to associate with all of these different people. And that was one of the things that I remember hearing. But I will say that just my impression, when I went to law school, I always felt, and, and, it, and I, it was something that I paid attention to, was that to me, the students who were in my class who went to HBCUs seemed to be far more uh, confident mm -hmm. and assured of themselves than did those of us who attended PWIs. That's just my opinion. It was just something that I noticed and paid attention to that they readily jumped right into leadership roles. It was just something mm -hmm. different that I saw in students that went to the HBCUs versus those who went to PWIs. I'm not saying that, you know, the people who go to predominantly white universities are not, you know, self-assured and confident and all of that stuff. But it was just, it was just something that I noticed about them that, you know, when the professor ask a question they would raise their hand quickly whereas you know many of us you know how people are <laughs> when you're in school and the professor says something you shrinking down and hiding in the back of the classroom mm -hmm. and I didn't notice that with anybody that I knew that went to HBCU at that particular time so it was just an observation that I made and so that myth of not preparing you to to deal with the real world and be around others I, I think that was blown out the water just from that experience, seeing them in that environment and quite frankly, seeming to do even better than those who had already had always been in that environment. I feel that. 
um, maybe too much attention is paid to the color, you know, the color of our skin or the, you know, the diversity or, you know, that it's this um, race of people, but, you know, culturally, um, you know, we're all American and, and it's not as much differences, but I know the HBCUs and I feel like HBCUs, one of the b biggest benefits is that they prepare you for the real world actually. And they is kind of like a, a place um, where you mature and where they want you to mature. And there's a focus on your self-development outside of just your academic development. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you, if you, follow the you know academic rubric you will learn the things that you need to learn um but hbcu does prepare you to be a leader there's a focus on leadership there's a focus on self-actualization there's a focus on you understanding and realizing your importance in the world and um a lot of aspects just just and i probably can't even really point to what specifically um there is of course if you're in a sorority or a fraternity they also prepare you um, you know, just prepare for adulthood, for the workforce, for life. But HBCUs definitely um, will help you in leadership roles. Steffi, you wanted to you wanted to address the you had a question. I mean, uh, something you wanted to yeah, address. I was, yeah, I forgot my other comment. I was gonna make, but one thing I wanted to uh, mention was one of my experiences at HBCU about them preparing you for your career and going into the to the real world and it was they get, taught me a lot of unwritten rules about you know mm -hmm. life and the business world uh, one thing i noticed that they taught me was about basic etiquette and this came from like the um one of the admissions ladies counselors i was over at the admissions office and i was sitting in my boyfriend's my son's father's lap and doing registration and she came from behind the counter and she scolded me and she was like if you don't get that boy's lap and i was so embarrassed because i felt i was away from home i could do this <laughs> but she was sort of like an extended family member mm. she said you don't do that you don't sit in no man's lap and so i knew okay i can't do that so i had to you know acclimate when i came to that building then i had other uh professors or they would tell me stuff like you know you don't chew gum you know with, with your mouth open or you don't you don't wear this or you don't wear that and so it just taught me basic things and we would do like you know basic mock interviews for getting a job and they would just be honest about how we were perceived by the larger society about how we spoke and did certain things so we got socialized two ways you know being black and then also socialized to function in the larger society so they just kind of kept it real with us and i yeah. appreciated that Wow. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because when I was trying to find with my oldest, she graduated a year early and we were looking at, you know, talking to different schools at a, at a college fair. And it was a, this one, mm -hmm. this one particular college fair was HBCU college fair. So it was all HBCUs there that was in attendance. And one conversation I had with a recruiter from Grambling State and I told her, I said, yes, my daughter is going off a year earlier. And she said, oh, we have a program. I'm sorry, this wasn't Grambling, this was actually Xavier. She said that we, had a pro we have a program for children who are coming in young. It's, it's a program where they are assigned to a, a teacher who would be like a mentor, but this was some person mm -hmm. that would check in with them and they were checking in with them emotionally, socially, 
and academically, and I thought, wow, you know, none of the P PWI schools that I talked to even had anything remotely close to that. And I said, wow. And I don't, not to say that any other HBCU didn't have that, it was just a conversation. It's, it was sparked in a conversation that I had with one recruiter and my concern with her going away from home and she's not even 18 yet. And I thought, wow. And I mean, that right there is what made me see the value of HBCU being more concerned with the emotional state of being of our children. And I was just so impressed with that. Mm. Yeah. I had the same experience. I felt like, and that's probably the overarching, like the, the biggest benefit I would say is that I had a secondary um, parenting. You know, I felt that all of the professors, all of the staff, everyone there, they treated us as if we were their family. If we were their, you know, nieces or nephews or little cousins or daughters or grandchildren, like that's how they approached us. And they didn't necessarily only talk, focus on academics, but um, they focused on, like we are, I know on our campus, we couldn't, um, you know, girls weren't allowed in the boy dorms. Um, I had a similar experience where I had, I had a hickey one time, and, you know, I, I walked Did you say hickey? You, you said hickey. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, he, and, you know, I walked past the professor and he stopped me and he was like, that's not what you're here for. Ooh. You know, and they, they, they always just made sure that they didn't, um, they still, I think that they felt, a, you know, a responsibility to us as beings versus, you know, just a job and this is you know I'm just educating people I just teach I just teach this subject it was a very holistic well-rounded family family atmosphere and experience oh wow that's that's awesome that is awesome man <laughs> now that that that's a powerful story right there because I, would you have gotten that if he went somewhere else possibly not mm-hmm I, I, wanna, I, think I, <laughs> I don't think I would have went on to become a uh, doctor had I started out in a predominantly white institution. Because mm. so when I went to HBCU, you know, because I initially went to be a nurse and then, but, you know, my professors and then the other people around me, they saw I had, you know, you know, greater potential. So they put that in me mm -hmm. and they fostered that. So had I not went to HBCU, probably just stopped in nursing. Which is a, a nice feel, you know. So they gave me the, you know, the courage and the motivation. And the one thing I want to point out about HBCU, it gives you, uh, gives students a lot of self-esteem. And then, uh, according to the research, self-esteem is a lot is a major proponent in motivation, which is a major proponent in learning. So if you feel good about yourself, you'll believe you can do certain things. And if your self-esteem is is low or if it's hampered. You may feel you are undeserving of a degree or undeserving of a particular profession, and that contributes to high dropout rates. Wow, that's awesome! I know our motto at Grambling State. Our motto was "Everybody, where everybody is, somebody." Mm -hmm. Say so that again. That Say was, that again. That was where everybody is, somebody. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. That was our school motto, and it was said constantly, all day, all the time. And that is definitely true. It did. It did give a, me a lot of self-confidence and self-esteem I know that um I flourished when I went to college when when maybe in high school I was a little shy or you know didn't feel necessarily 
that I fit in with certain, you know, teams or different things that I wanted to do when I was at the HBCU. I was pushed to do everything. And I was involved in so many different um, activities and programs. And I even had one of my professors see, you know, also see that potential in me and know that I would do well. And she put me into, um, I went to a medical school program every summer. Mm. And she made sure I went to the program. It wasn't something that I found. They would present you with opportunities on a regular basis oh. and encourage you to, you need to go in this program. You need to be in this. You need to do this. These are the, you know steps you should take and just offering that opportunity and making sure you knew that you were capable. Mm, that's and at my school, my, uh, in my psychology program, even after I graduated, my professors and then the students that came after me, they kept up with what I was doing. They always checked in and, um, you, you know, kind of was like my cheerleaders all the, you know, all the way through. So it was like an extended family. Mm. That's awesome. So I, also I, to, um, I had would have owed that to them too, so I couldn't just couldn't stop if I wanted to. <laughs> so they would have been on you, huh? Mm-hmm. So they had an expectation. Mm. Okay. And then in Arkansas at that time, you just that you didn't. They only had I think it was maybe like at the time and like in the nineties, might have been like four black psychologists. So you just, it wasn't, and they were, you didn't go on to get doctorate degrees in psychology in Arkansas. And the, I think the four people that did get them, you know, they, well, we all had to leave the state to get the doctorate. So, you know, we were just trying to increase our numbers too for black mental health professionals. I want to uh, read something that from the research that I found when I was looking for, uh, you know, schools to recommend to my daughter before she went on. She ended up choosing a predominantly white institution but there was some information that I've learned it educated me and I was like wow I wish I would have known this years ago but I want to talk about how important HBCUs are to the STEM STEM majors and one of the articles that I found in my research was they had the top 10 schools listed and I want to I want to um, name those uh, the, the 10th one was Fort Valley State University say what the number ninth one is the number ninth one the, the school that came in ninth place was morgan state university the school that came in eighth place was prairie view a m university in texas norfolk state university norfolk state university was number seven alabama state university came in sixth place fifth place was jackson state university fourth place was howard university Third place, Alabama A&M. Second place, Florida A&M University. And number, coming in at number one was North Carolina A&T State. And they came in first place. Now, you know, this, it changes per, I found that it changes per year. But this was about 27, 2018 when, it, when I discovered this article. So those numbers and those schools may have changed in 20, late 2018 to now. But from the research, that was something that I was very, very impressed with that knowing that if your children go off to an HBCU, they are not going to lose the quality of education when it comes to STEM majors being that there's a push for STEM majors right now in high schools, our HBCUs are well-equipped to really prepare our children to be successful in those STEM majors. And I, I'm going, I don't want to assume that our listeners know what STEM is, but STEM is the science, it's mathematics, it's the technical field. 
So if any student is looking to go into computer science or medicine, this is particularly uh, the majors that they would have would be STEM majors. I was, um, when I actually, when I entered college, I was a biology major. And um, the program that I attended was at Meharry Medical College, which is the African-American uh, medical school. And so I was in the realm of STEM, like that was, that was my major. So I was definitely given the tools necessary to succeed. And um, the program that I attended in the summer was actually an additional support to prepare us for what we were learning in school. So we would basically go off in the summer to prepare us for the following year. So we would get a head start and, and then also, you know, go over anything we may not have learned in high school as far as STEM. So there was a big focus and a big, big push um, for, for STEM education while I was there and an encouragement, you know, to go into the medical field. So it was very much supported. Mm, wow. What about you, Steffi? What do you think about the, the, the STEM majors and just the aspect that um, HBCUs add, the dynamics? Now, what is the term? What are you saying? If you're calling it, what is it? STEM with science, technology, and mathematics. The science majors, like biology, chemistry, math, you know, mathematics. Um, when I'm saying STEM, I'm referring to those because a lot of the schools, when they want to categorize those students that want to go to school for engineering or biology, when they want to major in engineering or biology or computer science, um, mm -hmm. they're being categorized under STEM. As you know, and in high schools, they're even doing that now. It's this push for to get more black students in STEM majors in colleges. Uh -huh. But then, just in my research, I found that you know I was thinking, oh, okay. Well, even I was thinking that way, but I'm sure that some others was thinking, okay, well, when I, when you're thinking to put your child in a particular school that's good for science, you're going to go off what you heard, and that's going to vary. Yeah. For, that's mm -hmm. going to vary depending on what region of America you live in. So you live in the Midwest, you're going to be thinking schools like you know Northwestern or Michigan or Indiana. But I mean, if you're on the West Coast, of course, you may be thinking UCLA or whatever. But just in my research, I found that okay. Those schools might come to mind, but there are schools where our students can thrive and be in those majors and really ex excel many of the white students that's at the predominantly white institutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, and I, when, when I think about, now that I know what that means, uh, for example, like um, when I was doing my research too, uh, I didn't know that uh, Xavier University, which is in New Orleans, mm -hmm. they... Um, they graduate a, a high number of black doctors, you know, um, and they only have about 3,000 students, but they lead the nation in black graduates who eventually complete medical school. And uh, so, you know, in order to be a medical doctor, you've got to take a lot of math, science, and chemistry. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that school, I think it's like, I think it's like the number one school in grad, preparing blacks to go on to become uh, medical doctors, you know, that enroll in medical school and actually graduate. Hmm. You know, I had, uh, I, I came across an article and they talked about the top HBCUs as far as production of medical school applicants. And this hmm. was, the article was 7-23-2018. Hmm. And this came out of the Journal of Blacks in Higher Education. So it came out of a journal. The number one, the, the school that was as, uh, ranked as number one as far as 
producing the most black students, um, uh, medical school applicants was Howard. Xavier came in at number two, but I do remember reading that a couple years ago, Xavier was number one, but like I said, per year it could change. Number three was, was, was listed was Spelman. Number four was Florida, Florida A&M. After that was uh, Oakwood University, then Hampton, then Prairie View A&M, and then Tuskegee was what was listed in that particular uh, journal article. Yeah. So I and thought that was like really I, impressive. Exactly. And it's one thing that I, I did notice when I was reading about uh, Xavier, what made them so successful, and I was looking at what would be, the, what, what is the variable? And they said that, um, that one of the main variables was that it, was, it produced an environment uh, that fostered cooperative student environments free of racial hostility. You know, while you, you know, in, in a program like a medical program is very competitive, very stressful. So mm. you, you would want an environment that didn't have the extra element of stress of, of being stereotyped because of your, you know, of racism or being looked down upon because of your skin color. And they said that was a major uh, variable in them having such a successful, um, you know, uh, rate of students graduating uh, from medical school. That's interesting you, you said that. I mean, like you both have attended uh, both schools. So you attended the HBCU mm -hmm. and as further education, you also attended a predominantly white institution. Mm -hmm. can, what, can, what, what would you say your experiences were for me, the one? Because you would assume that you would deal with more racism at the predominantly white institution, but at the HBCU, mm -hmm. you wouldn't. So could you, could you guys expound on the differences of how attending both and, and how one was more nurturing than the other. You kind of touched on it, Steffi, but if you all would like to address that. When I went to, um, when I went to the predominantly white schools, um, of course I was a, you know, with a you know, t typical token black person because they had accepted 25 applicants out of, I think about 500 and something that year. So it was a lot of pressure and I was the black person. Um, so, you know, I had a lot of anxiety because I was, the only black person you were singled out and every time something came up about race i had to be the spokes spokesperson for my whole race about that and it was during the time of the oj simpson trial so i was just stressed out going to class because i'm like oh my god i got to know something about this got to say the right thing about domestic violence i got to be politically astute so it was just a lot of pressure because you know i couldn't just be a, just a regular student if they brought up anything related to, you know, race and politics related to blacks, I had to have something to say. Or if I didn't, they would look at, look, you know, I would be frowned upon as not actively participating. And sometimes I didn't know the answer because I can't speak for all black people. So it was pressure in that way. And then you couldn't always say how you really felt because, you, you know, you wanted to, to fit in and also to graduate, too. You didn't want to look... Um, it can't be too radical. Uh, uh, you can't be openly radical in your thinking and be a psychologist. You have to conform until you get the degree, of course. Then you can you can say what you want to. But it's just a lot of pressure. My uh, the difference is I didn't have any sense of pressure when I was at the um, PWI. Maybe because that was what I was used to. Um, it was actually, my experience was more 
it was it was more um it was just more patterned after what i was, what i grew up in so i felt uh comfortable there but i also had the experience of racism that i never really had experienced i never really experienced racism in school when i was um you know, elementary education or my secondary education. It wasn't until I did go to college that I did experience that, you know, white and black racism. And um, they, it was very, it was a lot of differences where I could kind of get a reflection of kind of how it is in the real world. And I grew up watching a lot of movies on, you know, racism and movies from the civil rights era and seeing, you know, how people were treated, but it didn't reflect my real life experiences. I didn't see that in the neighborhoods I grew up in. And so when I went to college, um, all of the white fraternities and sororities had these big mansions and um, all these different opportunities for them. And then the black students had a tree. So all the fraternities and sororities, they had this one tree that they could gather around. And there were times where they would hang nooses from the tree. Um, what? And they would, they, would, they would do things in a taunting way to the students. So me, me personally, I am, I'm multiracial. So I'm, I'm, I'm awakening to the realization that I don't think that people um, I can identify exactly what I am. People may think I'm Hispanic. They may think you know, I'm mixed or they think I'm this or they think I'm that. So I can kind of navigate. But I was able to observe the the racism that was there and the need and the necessity for the African-American students to um, band together and be supportive of one another and kind of form their own, you know, entity or their own um, environment. They were always there for one another. Wow. This makes me want to go back to school and just go back, go to HBCU. That's what it makes me want to do. <laughs> That's what I want to do. I want to go back to school and I want to go to HBCU, definitely. I want to shed light on the partnerships that HBCUs have that um, a lot of people may be unaware of. I know you all would be able to, to shed some light on it. But, uh, Brandy, you mentioned one of them, the partnership that Meharry College has with Tennessee State. Um, I was reading yeah. something where they had where students from Tennessee State could actually take classes at McHarry College, you know, to go towards their major. And I thought, wow, that's that's awesome. I mean, in a lot of predominantly white institutions, they may have opportunities, um, but you're competing with a, a large group of people. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you had the that someone you was presented with more opportunities at the HBCU than at the predominantly white institution. So I mean, to me, the whole partnership that are had that's going on in a lot of the HBCUs with corporations or with um, larger institutions is a benefit for anyone to go to it. One of the other uh, partnerships I want to mention, too, is the partnership that Morgan State in Baltimore has with John Hopkins Hospital. So it's uh, a lot of the HBCUs have opportunity to work in different hospitals, and it'd be more of like an internship. Um, there are, I think it's like three or four. I know Hampton is one of them that has a partnership, I think, with Duke University medical school. So, I mean, I've, I've uncovered so many different um, partnerships that a lot of the HBCUs have for their uh, 
for their aspiring doctors, I would say. So I've uncovered a lot of that, but that's just from the research that I come across. Can Brandy, can you or, or Steffi uh, shed light on maybe some partnerships that I didn't mention? Because there are a lot of them. It's so, it's so many to mention, but from you all experiences, what you have witnessed or participated in. Yeah, so um, I also worked at Texas Southern University. So I was an executive assistant to the deans in the Department of Public Affairs. So I was, um, I witnessed so many partnerships and, and it really was the central focus was to partner with other organizations to be able to provide the students with, you know, continuing opportunities. So there were partnerships with uh, local government there were partnerships with um, the state. There were partnerships with colleges and um, high schools. So that was that was um, unique. We always were in partnership with recruiting, also with trying to get you know younger students involved, but making it so that they had additional opportunity and also the growing area for online education. So a lot of partnerships. Um, to foster more online education to give more students, you know, that were necessarily traditional students the opportunity to attend the university. I want to talk a little bit about the notables or the accomplishment of HBCUs um, that go unnoticed that's not reported in news that you hear every day. Um, one in particular is Morgan State University. They had 100% uh, in their nursing grads passing the boards. That's not in the news. You wouldn't even hear about that, but I just came across that article actually this week, and I thought, wow, that's very impressive. Also, there was four HBCU alumni that helped to revive the Black Bank revival. I don't know if, if, if you all have seen in social media this big push to support Black-owned banks. That whole Black Bank revival was done by HBCU alumni. Uh, uh, something else I found out this week as well is that that HBCUs have produced 40% of, of Congress, of the of black professionals that are in Congress. Um, one thing Winston-Salem has been credited for being like one of the most social, um, I don't know if I can explain it right, but one of the most social HBCUs and, and just the whole push of, of, of social mobility and and, and social existence within their school. And I, to our listeners, do your research on HBCU. Just pick one and just Google them. You'd be surprised with what you are or what you're going to get as far as the information or what you're going to learn about these HBCUs. Um, just what stuck out to me was Congress since I was in the School of Public Affairs. Um, that was an inspiration on a daily basis. Um, I was in the uh, Barbara Jordan, Mickey Leland School of Public Affairs, so every day just being reminded of Barbara Jordan and Mickey Leland. Um, politicians visited quite often to um, help develop partnerships and expose students to uh, the legal profession. The um, law school at Texas Southern University, the Thurgood Marshall School of Law. And so a lot of alumni that that went to these institutions were very instrumental in some of the major changes that have taken place in America as far as, um, you know, racism and equality and education, you know, education equality. So uh, that stuck out to me. And it is very, um, it is very beneficial if, if certain, if you want to participate in certain areas, um, 
to be associated with the alumni and any university you go to, whether it's a you know PWI or HBCU, the alumni are very supportive. Because of course, like the staff and the teachers, they want to see you succeed. They want to give you, you know, all the keys that they needed or wish that they had when they were students. So um, knowing who those notable people are that you know went to the university that you went to, it's great to know who they are and and be able to reach out to them because they they're, they welcome you with open arms, you know, and help you the best they possibly can. Hmm. I want to go off just briefly because we're talking about, cause just because you mentioned Texas um, Southern, what are you thinking about these rumors about them trying to separate the law school from the university now? Have you heard about that? Yes, I have. <laughs> um. You don't sound too happy about that. <laughs> Well, what it is is, so the law school is right across, it's the building adjacent to the School of Public Affairs, and the law school and the School of Public Affairs work very closely. Um, so my perspective, I think, may be a little bit different than than just someone aware of the university or having a different position or role in the university. So. Um, I understand, you know, a little bit of both sides. I was there when they um, transitioned from president and um, understand a little bit of the, the challenges that the university is having as a whole. And I feel that the law school, you know, may want to just break away from maybe the challenges that I think have been going on for a period of time. Um, it's a tense. It's a tense subject. It's a. It's an interesting matter. I don't, I'm not sure if it's happened any anywhere else, where a section of a school basically seceded from the other portion of the school. But um, I, I just would like to see how it works out, and I hope that you know they can come to agreements and come together and really work together. You know, aside from you know separating and figure out what a solution would look like to continue the relationship. Because it's almost, you know, like a marriage, you know, different different entities or bodies come together and, you know, maybe they can, you know, find out what it is that needs to be modified and, you know, modify those things and the whole university flourishes. Now, you know, I have to crack a joke. Because you said <laughs> about a school succeeding. I'm like, well, it is Texas. You know, they tried to <laughs> <laughs> that's a texas thing down there boy they be talking about separate for real <laughs> they like look they we, tired will, of we will do it ourselves <laughs> wow steffi do you have any anything you would like to add us for the notables or or regarding that uh, uh, nobody that i know from my school uh but you know i know like oprah graduated from tennessee state university mm -hmm just near, you know, this is the next state over. So that was <laughs> um, inspirational. And then we used to have, like, notables come to the campus a lot. Like, Jesse Jackson would come speak when I was there. So, at, you know, back in the 80s, we did, I never met anybody famous, you know, until he was, like, the first <laughs> <famous>. <laughs> I'd never seen, so. You know he went to North Carolina A&T, uh, just to add to Arthur mm -hmm. Tony Morrison, she went to Howard. Wanda mm -hmm. Sykes went to Hampton. Samuel Jackson went to Morehouse. And of course, we know, many of us on this line knows that Mr. Farrakhan went to Winston-Salem. 
it's it's a lot more who of of uh, famous celebrity people who have attended HBCUs. Um, but that list is so long, so we can go on and on. But I yeah. just want to throw some celebrities out there that have gone there. And uh, the celebrities that the world don't know about, all the people that we know that have attended HBCUs. A lot uh, of them send their children, too. And uh, that, was another, um, that was another thing that I noticed when I did go to an HBCU. And that may touch on one of the myths. I think that maybe only one of the myths that I might have been aware of was that um, – that it's bad, you know, that it's like a bad school, it's maybe violence involved and things that people would correlate with, say, like an inner city school. Um, mm -hmm. And it was the total opposite. Um, a lot of the students there were, you know, were the children of, you know, a lot of different celebrities or people with, um, with a lot of African-American, like, lineage and legacy go through HBCUs. So it was interesting to see that this stereotype that I was, um, you know, just programmed by society to believe about African-American people or black people was, was just totally untrue. You guys like to add about the obstacles that HBCUs are currently, are currently experiencing and how, or how the black community can help eliminate those obstacles. Funding is one of them. We can always use more money, and mm. I think more people, more graduates should become, uh, you know, active contributing alumni. I think that's a major thing. Yeah, I would say um, cooperation, you know, a level of um, increased cooperation, increased communication, and increased. Um, like transparency, like the ability to acknowledge what the problems are and what the challenges are and not, you know, acting as if they don't exist or that speaking on them are going to somehow produce negative effects, but just being able to openly acknowledge the issues that do exist and seek, you know, seek assistance for those. To figure, you know, figure out some solutions to go ahead and fix the challenges that they have. Okay. Well, thank you. As we get ready to close out this uh, topic, I would like, um, I'll actually go first, Steffi. If you could just in one sentence say why someone should attend HBCU, and then after that, Brandy, I'll have you answer the question. Because uh, I think if you attend the HBCU, your chances of graduating. Um, rises trem tremendously if you attend HBCU. In a sentence. I, th I think that it's beneficial for students to choose HBCUs because they will receive a holistic approach to their education and not only will they, you know, be educated academically, but they will, you know, be educated in terms of their maturity and psychologically, emotionally, um, and it's just a, a, a place to get a foundation and, a, and a, become grounded and rooted before you do go off into the real world. And um, it's a place to, to learn how to thrive. 
you know, you, you all mentioned the financial barriers that the HBCUs have, and one played out in, in, the, in the public, which was uh, Bennett College. They was about to lose their accreditation where they lost it. But they had to raise $8.5 million in order to keep from losing it. Uh, and I'm sorry, I forgot it was $5 million, I'm sorry. But then they ended up raising eight point five or close to $9 million and still lost their accreditation. But that was just one of the financial barriers that HBCUs face every day. It, this particular time, it was played out on social media. It was played out in the public. Um, that's one aspect of it. But as far as scholarships, what type of barriers do HBCUs um, face with as far as that? Do you mean in terms of their financial mm -hmm. funding and ability for students to get scholarships? Yes. Yeah. I can't address it from a standpoint of, uh, uh, I guess, like working in the interior to understand where the problems, what the root of the problems are. Um, but I know that there is a heavy burden to provide financial aid and with more students needing financial aid, then of course there's more of a drain on whatever pot of funds that they do have. And one thing about HBCU is that they do care about every student that comes and they're gonna do, you know, do what they need to do or do their best to make sure that you have somewhere to live while you're there and you are able to go to the university. So I think that also financially there has been a lot of mismanagement of funds in different ways and I'm not sure why that has been or, or what you know what has caused that but you know I think like I said before I think that getting getting help for the things that there are problems in is something that would be beneficial you know just working together and getting um, maybe hiring people that specifically come in to address some of the issues that they have would be would be great I think um Another thing probably would be marketing more um, about you know mm. different scholarship opportunities and then you know marketing to a, a wider array of potential applicants. You know, I think that's a big deal. I think like the younger generation now, I think very few of them are even aware of of how how um, many HBCUs we have that may be you know in their own backyard. They may not even be aware of it. And so I think it Ooh, needs to be more It's interesting marketing. you said that. Oh, mm -hmm. you said that, it made me think of it. Uh, Kentucky State. I was not aware of Kentucky State. And and yeah. the closeness, the and I, I closeness and proximity was Chicago. Oh, okay. It's in, yep, it's I in, it's in, uh, it's in, yes, and it's actually four hours from Chicago. So I, I actually Googled, you know, the closest HBCUs to Chicago, and actually that's how I found mm -hmm. out about Kentucky State. So when you said that, as far as marketing, you're right. See, people so used to hearing the the Howards, the Florida A&Ms, but you don't hear about the, the Oakwood universities. You know, you don't hear about the Kentucky State. You don't hear about many of those right. schools. Uh, what's that, the Paul Quinn College down in Texas? You don't hear about those unless you're actually doing a research because there was HBCUs that 
prior to my research, I had never heard of because my mind was so stuck on the marketing for Howard, for, you know, um, Florida A&M, Spelman, Morehouse. That was where my mind was because those are the ones that I always heard. But just in the research, it was so many HBCUs that was uncovered. I, I found out about Morgan State in the last two or three years. Didn't even know about it. Bowie State. I mean, there are so many other schools out there that we that we don't know about. So when you said about the marketing, it just really hit home to me personally that I was able to find out about more HBCUs like Harris Stowe. I had never heard of that. I didn't know about Lincoln College in in uh, Missouri. There's two Lincolns, but I didn't know about it. So and even just knowing where these colleges were even located, I didn't even know. So. When you said that, I'm like, wow, I mean, that, that probably better marketing will also uh, address the issue of, of low finances because I think um, from the research that I got, don't quote me on it, but the HBCUs and endowment is less than 4% or some of what the predominantly white, white um, institutions get. I know it's a very low number in comparison to the predominantly white. Um, institutions. I'm trying to recall, so I could be wrong with the percentage, but in comparison to predominantly white institutions, the endowment is just so much less, and this is why they're having financial issues in many of the HBCUs. I want to thank you, you, you both, uh, for coming on today to talk about HBCUs and the importance of HBCUs in the Black community, and also sharing your personal experiences of attending HBCUs. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in with us this week with Conversations with the Royal Empress, and we look forward to talking with you in our next episode. Thanks for listening to another episode of Conversations with the Royal Impress. Tune in next week for another enlightening conversation. For more information on the Royal Impress, please visit the website royalimpress.org. You can also follow the Royal Impress on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Conversations with the Royal Impress is a subsidiary of the Royal Impress organization. All rights reserved.